ads first this week, listeners. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month's feature book follows on well from last month's episode on developing self-regulated learners. Singles, a new contribution to the InAction series, is entitled Strengthening the Student Toolbox in Action. And it's a summary of John Dunlosky's writing on effective and efficient learning strategies, such as retrieval practice, spacing, interleaving, and elaborative interrogation. Gill's new book deals sensitively with each of these topics, with each section breaking down one of the strategies, providing strengths, weaknesses, and limitations, and providing practical advice for implementation in the classroom. So if you're keen for a refined understanding of these important teaching and learning strategies, I personally learned the term diminishing cues retrieval, which I hadn't heard before, then why not check out Singil's Strengthening the Student Toolbox in Action. A reminder that the usual John Cat discount code of ERRR30 is active, which will give you 30% off all physical books from John Cat UK or John Cat USA, who ships internationally. So just use that code ERRR30 at checkout for a huge discount on the full range of excellent John Cat books. It was actually a retreat for me to meet Alex and Jonathan at Edfest when I was recently in the UK, and it was really exciting to see a range of their wonderful John Cat books available at the conference too. That code ERRR30 at checkout will also work for my two books too, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and the recent Tools for Teachers. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 68 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with Ian Cunningham. Ian is the founder of the Self-Managed Learning College, or SMLC, a student-directed learning institute based in Hove, near Brighton, in the south of England. Ian has published six books and over 120 articles and papers on areas including education, leadership, and organisational change, and has been a visiting professor in a whole range of institutions right across the globe, from the US to India to Hungary. 
Ian chairs Strategic Developments International Limited, a social consultancy working across all corporate sectors, and you'll hear more about his interesting consultancy work with a range of international organisations in this podcast too. This podcast follows on from my discussion with Peter Gray back in episode 38, as well as my discussion with Naomi Fisher back in episode 59, both of whom spoke about self-directed education. The approach to learning and schooling advocated for by both of these guests was pretty far outside of my own experiences, and I wanted to get first-hand experience of what a learning environment like this could look like in real life. So I actually went to check it out. So this podcast follows a morning visit that I did to the Self-Managed Learning College. I was there from about 8.30 a.m. till about 2 p.m. Following that, Ian and I went to my Airbnb and conducted this interview. Now, on that topic, I've actually just returned from two weeks in England, during which I did three school visits. The first and the topic of this podcast was to the Self-Managed Learning College. I then went to the hugely inspiring XP Doncaster, which is famous for its work on expeditionary learning and its unique approach to pastoral care and culture building through crews and targeted outdoor ed experiences. Then finally, I visited the now incredibly famous Michaela Community School, which was a truly phenomenal experience. But I didn't just visit these schools, I also got to interview the founders of each. So there are four interviews coming your way over the coming months. Today with Ian Cunningham from SMLC, then two separate interviews with Andy Sprakes and Gwyn Apharry, the two founders of XP, and then finally an interview with Catherine Burblesing, the founder of Michaela. I haven't worked exactly when I'll be releasing these uh, interviews as yet, whether I'll be doing one per month as usual or more frequently or something like that over the next few months, or maybe I'll intersperse it with other content over the next few months. But rest assured that these exciting interviews are all within the ERRR pipeline. However, if you are really keen to get an overview of my visit to these three schools and hear more of my own personal thoughts about the trip and the hugely varying approaches that these three schools take to education, then you are in luck. On the afternoon of my visit to Michaela, the final school that I visited on my trip, uh, James Mannion, a good friend and fantastic educator, interviewed me for a mammoth three hours on my impressions of the schools and some of my thoughts on education more broadly. I'll be sharing this interview with all patrons of the ERRR podcast within a few weeks from this podcast release. So if you've been considering becoming a supporter of the podcast for a while, but you haven't quite taken the plunge, then now is an excellent time. My three-hour interview with James Mannion will be available on his excellent Rethinking Education podcast in four or five months' time too. But if you're keen to hear it now, whilst these reflections are fresh for me, as well as get all the other perks of an ERRR membership, such as access to all past episode summaries and interactive transcripts, then go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash ERRR. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollielovell.com forward slash subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 68 of the ERRR podcast with Ian Cunningham. Ian Cunningham, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Hi. So lovely to have you here, here in a new education research reading room today. We're in my Airbnb in Brighton in a 
an art gallery actually it's quite interesting. <laughs> well, it, yeah, a lot of nice paintings in here. <laughs> it's good. And and for the benefit of listeners, um, you were generous enough to have me at your self-managed learning college this morning, yep. which was a fantastic experience. So today today's interview is based upon reading your book, but also uh, an actual visit to the college. So it's really exciting. And the question we usually ask within the education research reading room is, what do you see is the purpose of school-based or learning community-based education? Uh, we have a simple notion of, of how do you help people to learn to lead a good life. And good life can be quite a complicated notion because it isn't just about happiness, for instance, because there's a lot of people doing work on that which is saying, you know, well, the, the goal is happiness. But I, th- I see it as more than that. And it's about maybe fulfilment. It's about a whole a whole raft of things. But it's about each person has to lead their own good life, you know. So so it's therefore not having a standardised curriculum, for instance, as a start point, because it's about how you respond to this person and help them to lead a good life. Great. I'm interested a little bit on your your thoughts around the process of learning. What it's a pretty broad question, but what do you think it takes for someone to learn something? First of all, I, th- I think it, learning is natural to humans. It's one of the things that has made our species very successful is we're voracious learners. And a baby is born learning because, as we know, a baby is the least equipped, a human baby is the least equipped to, to cope in their environment of any creature on the planet. And therefore, they have to learn quickly and rapidly. And I think that the purpose of learning, of course, is to be able to lead the life that you want to lead back to a good life. But I think the ways that people learn are quite complex and, and different. I have to say that, you know, for instance, we've done research on different ways that young people can learn and found 57 different ways that young people can learn. But And in 20 years of running our learning community, no one's ever asked us to create a, a classroom. So I don't see the classroom as a, as a viable option. It's a very not cost-effective approach to, to learning. So I think, it, I think we just learn all the time. And I, I find it very worrying that a lot of education people, will, for instance, you get the Department of Education saying, oh, that a child out of the classroom is not learning. And you're going, it's nonsense. You know, like learning loss during the COVID, nonsense. You know, our students uh, learned huge amount during the fact the lockdown and that they were at home. Some of them learned a new musical instrument from scratch. Uh, to become pretty competent players. Some of them did very complex stuff on computers, making amazing games. So learning is something that we do all the time. I think there are different kinds of learning. In other words, the problem in the English language is we have one verb to learn. And I rather like the work of, of Gregory Bates somewhere. He talks about different kinds of learning. So learning one and learning two, for instance. So learning one is about the stuff that's in context. It's like earlier today we were looking up the uh, boss Roots, and so I learned something because I didn't know where the bus forty six went, and you needed it. So I learned something, and you learned something, and that's learning one. It's 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 within a context. It's the kind of thing that schooling tends to say is all learning is about. But learning two is about how you go across context, and that covers stuff like self confidence and self esteem and ability to to do all sorts of things. You know, problem solving and the, the creativity and all these. So that 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 kind of learning is a different kind of learning. And I think that the schooling world focuses too much on learning one, such that of course 
that's the stuff that you can test very easily. And it's not so easy to test things like self-confidence. Mm. I, there you, you were kind of um, speaking out against the classroom and saying that in, in the time you've been running the SMLC, you haven't created a classroom and things like that. In the learning community today, I did see things that in some ways resembled classrooms. There were students working with teachers uh, in small groups on specific topics to pass tests and to learn, but also some of them were, were there to pass tests. When you, when you say, you know, classrooms aren't very efficient, uh, what, what do you mean about a classroom that isn't efficient? How, how would you distinguish that from what, what, we, what I saw today? Well, first of all, in our context, the students choose whether they come to a workshop which was what we tend to call them because, as you saw, there were about two or three students working with one of our learning advisors, we call them. And obviously, that's when the students have worked out what they want to learn and they need some of that stuff. And it may be that they want to do that with other people so they can bounce off other people. So unlike a classroom where in a, in a typical school, it's like you're compulsorily there for a start, you know, you've got 30 children who are required to be in there whether they want to be there or not in in our context so that's what i mean by a classroom is a place where it's you know a set number of children are required to be in that room for a certain amount of time for instance it sometimes shocks visitors you may not have seen it today but that uh, there's a workshop three or four people or maybe five people are in there and then somebody leaves because they've got i've got enough or i'm bored with this and they go and they've got absolute right to do that so Obviously, someone coming and saying, yes, there's someone, and it might well be that they're telling, you know, they're giving information to students, that the student wants to learn. I think you've sat in on a maths workshop, and so the students have worked out what they want to learn. The learning advisor will be working with them over time on the things that they want to learn, and that, as you say, some of them will take the General Certificate of Education in the, in the UK at 16, but that's a choice, again. I mean, students, there'll be some students doing maths uh, that may not decide to do the general certificate of education mm. at 16. They may decide to do it a year earlier or a year later, or they may decide not to do it at all with us. So it's obviously, for my money, that's different from a classroom. You can't just walk out of a classroom because that's not allowed, whereas our students can, or they can walk in on, on something. And there's no such thing as being late because if they if they decide to come, they come at that time. It's the law of two feet, as some people put it. You know, you've got two feet, you can walk and you can go wherever you like within that premises. Obviously, one of our rules is that you're not allowed to stop other people learning. So clearly, if a staff member is talking, the expectation is other people will, will be uh, being quiet. The other thing is that what you wouldn't have seen, of course, today, because you're taking a, a snapshot, would be right at the start of the year when learning advisors are finding out about the students. So I often say that what we... Do, what I do when I'm working with a group of young people, and we'll talk about learning groups, I guess, in a bit, is that I'm asking questions because I don't know the answer. And a school, a classroom model is the teacher asks questions because they do know the answer and they're testing people. And I'm asking people, who are you? What do you want to learn? What problems have you got learning? Uh, what processes you like to use to learn? And what kind of person are you that, that, that means you want to learn this whatever you said you want to learn. So I'm asking a lot of questions at the start of the year and at the start of working with young people. Is, is a, I need to know about them. And then I need to know, well, how do they want to learn? And some will, as you may have seen from this morning's community meeting, which is the first thing in the morning, that some students are saying they want a one-to-one -one session, which you 
can't do in a school typically so that some people will go to a workshop and they'll be there with three or four others some people as I said I want a one-to-one session and they would log that at that first meeting in the morning okay I'm going to have a one-to-one session and that again may be leading to them the older students taking public exams because unfortunately there are hoops to be jumped if people want to I don't know, if you want to become a scientist you have to do science stuff if you want to be a doctor you're going to have to do this science stuff although we do have ways around that and i could explain that in a bit you know where people can avoid tests and, and find a way into to higher education for instance without them but um absolutely we're caught in an in an educational world which even the people who set up the national curriculum think that gcse should go that they're a stupid qualification at 16 very few countries have qualifications required at 16. Mm can be a challenge. One of the things that you mentioned in your book that I thought was interesting around kind of supporting learning for people was this analogy of the glass. Would you like to, to share the analogy of the glass? Yeah, because people sometimes say what we do is unstructured because we, we, we say uh, our students can learn anything they want uh, in any way they want, literally. Um, they can ask for anything they want. I mean, and Funny enough, they don't come up with stupid things that, they, you know, nobody says, oh, I want to build a nuclear reactor or something. I mean, they, they it's the opposite, that especially if they've been to school, they don't know that they can ask for something that, that, that they may not have thought about. Like we have a 3D printer and the student didn't think that we and we said, oh, yeah, you want a 3D printer? We'll get, you know, get a 3D printer. So we have structures, but the structures in school are designed for control and our structures are designed for freedom. So I've got a glass here, and the advantage of this glass is, first of all, it's an empty space that's bounded. So you've got a rigid glass structure, but with nothing in it. And the value of the nothing in it is that I've got water in it, but I could have beer, I could have wine, anything. It would not be of any value if it was full to the top with concrete or something. So usefulness comes from nothingness. This is a very Taoist notion. It's and the the the, the simplest way to describe that is is a wheel is only useful if it's got a hole. A wheel without a hole is useless. You can't do anything. I mean, you can roll it around, but what use is that? You've got a hole in the middle. You can put an axle in. You've got an ox cart. You've got a, and eventually you've got cars and buses and trains, etc. And they all have holes in the right places. So the notion is of having a bounded space. So like the building we're in is a bounded space. There's roof and ceilings and things. And so we can do things in it, which we couldn't if there was no roof, for instance. So bounded space is is important. So the other thing about this is it's transparent. Uh, so we're, our structures are transparent. We'd say this, these are the structures that we use. And it's it's robust in the sense that it copes with climate change, for instance. Um, oh, uh, for instance, old glass, uh, if you put them in a, a modern uh, dishwasher, they'd crack beer glasses and things. And now we've got glass doesn't do that. So that has to be robust. So we've got robust rust structures. And the need for a rigid structure is, is because if it was made of paper, it wouldn't hold the water. So an example of a structure is, I mentioned this morning, we have a community meeting every morning at 9.15 for the morning group, and we have an afternoon group where it's 1.30. And that is a, a rigid structure. But actually, students can say anything they want in that community meeting, literally anything. It's chaired in rotation. So there was this morning a 10-year-old chairing the, the meeting. It is a rigid structure, but it's empty. And it's one of the things that when we get on to maybe talking about staffing later, you've got to have the staff who are 
prepared to be reactive rather than school teachers wanting to be proactive. School teachers turn up with what they want to teach and they've got their objectives, etc. In our case, a lot of the time we're being reactive. You know, there was a student would say, oh, we'd like to do something like this. And then we go, okay, how, do we go, how are we going to do it? So that, that community meeting is a rigid uh, empty structure. And then the first week that students are with us, we ask them a series of questions and we don't know the answers to them. We ask them about their past. We say, well, where have you been in your, your life? And the reason we ask that is because everyone is today a result of the past. So you've either learned it or you've gone through some physical change or it's in the genes. You know, that's it. That's what makes a person, basically. Genes, learning and physical change. And there may be an X factor if you're religious and spiritual dimension. But the things that we know about, are those are the three factors. Can't do much about the genes. Well, we can with epigenetics, physical change. So we're interested in their learning experiences. We've spade them as they are. And many of our students come from school with learning experiences which have made them feel diminished as a human being. So they, they don't feel very confident, etc. And that's important for us to know. So then we say, well, where are you now? Second question, who are you? What kind of person? And we want to know about values and beliefs. And there are, those two are quite separate. So values are what we care about what we, and beliefs are what we hold to be true. So, for instance, a student may have a belief, you know, they may, may have a value that they want to learn, but have a belief that adults are anti them. Uh, we had a boy, for instance, that was sent by school who was selective mute. And the reason why he never spoke was because when he was in his primary school, the teacher said to him, you're stupid, Darren. This is what we got from his mother. So Darren decided to stop speaking to adults because he didn't feel that adults were on his side. So he was someone who valued learning, but his belief was that adults aren't, weren't going to help him. <laughs> so values and beliefs are two different things, but they're very important that we know about them. Because sometimes I've Students have strange beliefs about learning, for instance, and they have different values, the per kind of person they want to be. So actually, when we ask them the third question, which is, well, where do you want to go in life? Who, who would you like to be? You know, uh, what's important to you to, to learn? And that, again, is based on their own values and beliefs right now. So, but, but, so when anyone sets a goal, it's always based on values and beliefs. And then the fourth question is, well, how are you going to get there? So the person is here and when they want to get there, how are they going to do that? Which in a school context is a kind of curriculum or syllabus or whatever, and they come up with it themselves. And then the fifth question is, well, how do you know you've become the person you want to be? How do you know you've, you've got to the way a bit where you want to be on your journey? And it's a, a metaphor of life as a journey, but it's a metaphor that is culturally bound. And so therefore we use that metaphor of, of a kind of life as a journey. So we ask those questions and that's a structure, they can answer them any way they want, literally any way they want, and then they're in a learning group, and we, we have these groups of six by age. So um, you sat in on one group, I think that was a older students, I'm not sure, or younger students, anyway. And those groups meet every week, and that's where the answer to those questions produces a document we call a learning agreement. So this is an agreement they're making with the community, so with the adults, but also with their group, and the group is six people of a similar age, because clearly nine-year-olds have different issues to 16-year-olds. And as you were saying, right, there were students who were looking to take the GCSE exam, so therefore they have different needs from uh, a nine-year-old who's not interested in that and is, uh, you know, has a whole range of different perspectives on the world than, than when they're 16. So that's a structure. But again, in the learning group, the group creates its own rules 
just as the community creates its own rules. And then, you know, people are allowed to say what they want, but each person gets a time. It's not a team or a seminar or a discussion group. It's a what I would call a dialogic group. It's where there's a dialogue between people. They engage with each other at the human level. And the idea is that the group becomes a kind of safe place that they can talk through anything they want. Sometimes it can be personal issues. What they generally do is to talk about what they're, they're wanting to work on. So that the group becomes a place where they plan the coming week. So they'll put down what they're going to do. And then the next week we ask them, How's it gone? Did you achieve that? So these are all structural arrangements, but they're quite different from what I would label a classroom because when they meet in a group, for instance, to work with one of our learning advisors, that's because they've chosen it. That's come out of that learning agreement that they've decided they want to learn that, that subject and that they can then use that kind of structure, which is a workshop structure, which they can be there or not. They can, they can uh, as I said, walk if they don't, want to stay there that's perfectly free so these are all structures okay i'm starting to get it so the 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 thesis is that we set up structures that provide the required space for learning to happen but then we provide enough flexibility within those structures that such that students can really lead their own learning uh, in many different ways and that's going to support their kind of intrinsic motivation and empower that and and give them what they needed at a specific time Another another thing that was interesting within your book was this kind of, and it's kind of another structure, you talked about the, an example in which an investment bank would get graduates in and instead of training them in the usual way that we'd expect to train people, they would just give them a test straight away. This test had all this important stuff in that they needed to know to be successful in the bank or, or you know, regulation and things like that. Students would get a result and instead of them then going, okay, here's a result, you got... 45% we're now going to train you for the next three weeks. They'd say, okay, you just did the test. You know what you need to know. You've got however long it was, two weeks, a month. Yeah, two weeks, yeah. To find the answers and you're going to do the test again in two weeks and you've got to get 100% work out how. T- tell us about how that relates to this idea of structures and rather than process focus. Yeah, because, I mean, that's a very minimal structure in a sense. It's, it's you test at the beginning and you test at the end. And I think that, that it's one of my criticisms of the training world because a lot of our work with organisations, I think, oh, you got to train this person. We go, well, no, wait a minute. We need to be have a notion of an outcome, which is a structural device, if you like. So I, I, I mean, the simplest way to describe it is like, is like in the UK, uh, we have a driving test, and it is the most important test in our society because you've got a lethal weapon. And you have to be able to show that you can drive on a real road safely. You know, we can always say that, the, you know, people slip through the net and buy a lot. But, I mean, you know, we have to have that. Now, in the UK, unlike some countries, we don't care about how people learn that. A person could have had 1,000 hours with a motoring school or 10 hours going around the block with mom and dad. Uh, we don't care as a society. All we care about is can this person do it? And so I think that that kind of outcome structure, so that would be an example in that in that investment bank, which is a very successful investment bank in financial terms, anyway, you know, and the fact it survived the 2008. And uh, I was working with them on a mentoring scheme and we were looking at, you know, that and we, we figured this is, you know, why, why waste time in a, in a classroom? Why should we care how people learn stuff? What they had to do, of course, was to go around and talk to people and ask questions and read stuff and and help each other because it's not competitive. 
and that's the other problem with 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 the schooling model you know is is uh, if you help someone in a test it's called cheating you get punished for it in in work you have to cheat all the time you know we help each other and i have a, I have a slide with cheating and stealing on it and various other things you know because innovation is about stealing ideas from people so testing is useful in that kind of context because it's a feedback mechanism and in that particular case it's pretty objective because i like as you say regulations and this kind of thing but it's also the bank's rules which again are laid down uh, that by the bank and the person has to obey them in terms of things like insider trading and all those kind of things so it's a very fair way and also it made the people have to go out and talk to people and learn about how the bank works for real by going and actually asking people like going to the finance department or the you know whatever and ask them about financial rules that the 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 bank had so that was a very minimalist structure but what it did fits with what what we would say in the learning agreement the person is getting sending them goals but they can learn this in any way they want they can choose any learning mode so there's a myth that for instance students like to learn everything off a screen which is just not true i mean we a lot of our students want to read books they they and we've had students saying well, I, I just want to have a worksheet you know <laughs> to go through and i want to do it with paper and pencil i don't want to go on a, on a screen because it's boring the stuff that's on screens and i can work quicker than flicking through on a, you know so so what we try to do is have those structural arrangements that that provide that freedom you know but unless we know what they want to learn we can't help them and therefore those structural arrangements you know are, are partly for our benefit because we need to know about this person otherwise how can you help this person to learn if you don't know about them yeah it's a really interesting approach like that kind of outcomes driven whether it be a test in the investment bank or the driving test or i actually had a similar experience at uni because i was doing a strange kind of combination of classes and i couldn't attend the lectures for some of them and some of them i my lecturers were so bad, I just chose not to attend them actually. And in many cases, I did better in the subjects where I didn't attend the lectures because I just focused more on, yeah. you know, reviewing the past exams, working out what was actually going to be in them and then pre preparing for them in my own way, which worked really well. That's interesting. And I guess it's similar with your GCSE thing at the self-managed learning college where students say, okay, I want to do GCSEs. There's that externally kind of graded test and then you say okay how do you want to get there and they can choose yeah and we but also more importantly we ask them what kind of grade they want because if you get a grade four it's a pass but if you want to be, be uh if you want to be a vet or a doctor you're really aiming in science for eight or nine you know so the scale is one to nine so some of our students are aiming for a nine and others are aiming for a four and that means different things for us, you know, in terms of the work we need to do. Or if someone might put down uh, learning a language, but then some, somebody wants to do a GCSE in that language, which means it's a lot of writing. Somebody else wants to be able to get by in France, and that's much more oral. And, you know, actually the written stuff is not anywhere so relevant, really. You, you know, it's basically, can you speak the language and can you understand when somebody talks to you, which is totally different from exams so again we 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 have to know that kind of thing it, it isn't any use just saying you know and we're going to have a workshop on french well that would be useless because our students actually use duolingo a lot and if they want to learn a language we find somebody you know mm -hmm. like we have as you know staff member is german and he'll if anyone wants to learn german he'll help them learn german but he wanted to know what what level they want to go 
Yeah, it's great. I mean, that talk about the the investment bank and things like that is a good segue into the next thing I wanted to ask you, Ian, which is before you kind of started the the self-managed learning college, my understanding is you you were still focused on self-managed learning and 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 you and I believe your late wife coined that term back in the yeah. 70s or something like that. Yeah. But you actually did that work in industry a yeah. lot. So what what were you actually doing? Who were you working with and what were you helping them to do around this topic of self-managed learning? I've just made that aside earlier about training, you know, that there was quite a radical connection around the, the, this would be the late 1970s into the 1980s. And there was a group of us who actually produced a declaration on learning. And we were very influential in getting companies to actually stop using the word training and talk about learning and development. But we, what we were trying to do is to get more than just a language change, but a, a mindset change that if you want organizations to improve, you know, how do they, how are they going to do it except by people learning you know i was working with a business that, that was having issues and you know so they were saying well we've got to change the people or change the people meaning we're going to fire people or they've got to develop you know yeah. <laughs> but either way we've got to change the people i'll short circuit i mean i give you the history of it but let me give you an example of where i would go and talk to say a, a company a, a sub board of directors and with the chief executive and and I would say, okay, tell me what you're trying to achieve around here. You know, it's uh, strategies, uh, mission, vision, you know, whatever it is. And they tell me. So then I'd say to the individual directors, okay, so what do you do to make that happen? You know, you're all here to manifest that, to make this strategy or, you know, and you've got your, you've all got a role to play. And they tell me about that. And I'm going, so what makes you effective at doing that? You know, what are the ability skills or whatever? And they'll, they'll talk about the ability to problem solve or they, uh, they might talk about functional knowledge, but a lot at that level, they're often talking about, you know, I'm a good strategic thinker or, or whatever, or I'm a good detail person or whatever, you know. And so then I'll say, and how come you can do that? And I say, there's only two answers you like to give me. One is that it's genetic or the other is you learned it. So they tell me, and first of all, genetic is very rarely mentioned. It can happen, but very rarely and sometimes erroneously. But anyway, uh, so they tell me how they've learned it. And by and large, there's no mention of very rare mention of school, college, university or training courses. They've learned it through travel, through doing interesting projects or having a good boss, through reading, through, you know, watching the TV, on Internet. I mean, all sorts of ways that they've learned. So I'm saying, okay, so, so why are you wasting this money on training courses and all the rest of it? What we've got to do is to find out what a person needs to learn to make your business go effectively and then help them to learn it. And that could be all sorts of ways. Um, we actually wrote a handbook of work-based learning, which was in it, you know, how people can learn at work free by and large. I mean, you know, a classic would be uh, uh, I had a HR director go, oh, I'm not very good at the, the finances. I need to go do a finance for non-financial managers course. There was a, a week's course for it. And I'm going, well, you're, you're a director. Have you spoken to your finance people? Well, oh, they're boring you know, accountants. So I said, well, how about you talk to them? So they go and ask the finance people. And then they come and I say, so what did you get? Oh, they were very helpful. I now know all about, you know, the, the, how they do the budgeting and the balance sheets and, and, you know, and all this fancy, some of these fancy acronyms and stuff. And do you need a, still need a, a financial for non-financial managers? Of course, no, of course not. So, you know, so it's like 
the, the, usually you can find out in the organization the stuff that you want. Mm. And if you don't, you maybe go outside. So I remember working with um, one of the, a big international high-tech company. And it was when, this was quite a while ago, when broadband came out maybe 20 years ago. And all of these guys are going, it's a really expensive course. And I got, you know, so they agreed that one of the group, I was working with six of the kind of middle, you know, middle ranking techie people. Those are very leading edge guys, you know, super techies. And so one person went and then he came back and coached everybody else. And he did it in a, like a couple of hours. What was a week's course? Cause he'd got all the notes. He gave all the people the material. And the most important learning was that they can learn from each other, you know, and that, and that, that, that was an example where they didn't need to go on this course, save the, save the company huge amount of money, not that the company was going to send them all because it was, it was you know, thousands of pounds to do this course. And so it, a lot of what we've been trying to do is, was getting people to see that you can, you can do it yourself and that when you study leaders, and we, I've just given you a copy of the late book that just came out last month on developing leaders for real, and what we're saying is that leaders actually very good at self-managing their learning you know and i quote examples in there uh, you know trying to deal with the fact that people might say well it's all very well you know so i've quoted two sirs you know sir james dyson and uh, sir richard banson and both of them talk about how they learned and it's not through going on courses it was nothing to do with school and university and they're they're, they're kind of they're two of the most famous entrepreneurs in the UK, but you could cite all sorts of people. You know, Bill Gates was notorious for when he was going to another country, asking all these questions, and he was flying there, and he was asking people about the culture and what's going on, you know. And so people who are good at learning, first of all, are good at asking questions. It's one of the things that I've identified when I was doing leadership research, because I was a senior fellow in leadership in a, in a business school before becoming a chief executive of business school, and doing that research, one of the few things I found that leaders had in common was that they damn good at asking questions and as a result of that damn good at learning so the whole idea of self-managed learning was wait a minute these people manage their own learning that the training industry has got like the education industry has got a vested interest in maintaining its own position and that uh, i'm not interested in that. i mean i'm i love helping companies do better you know and i'm interested in the business being successful you know because if they don't then people get fired and you know Etc. Etc. I mean, businesses go down. It's bad news. So, so, and learning is the key to making a business successful. People who learn best, you know, it's all very well having strategic plans, but it's about how you learn when the market changes. If you take what happened in two thousand and eight, you know, which I worked with a lot of companies then, and 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 the ones that learn best, you know, were the ones who survived, and the ones who didn't learn well went to the wall. It's you know, if they stuck to what they've been doing, you know, then. They weren't going to survive. So, so the self-managed learning stuff came out of working with businesses and organizations, and it came out of lots of other research, like in the action learning field, that, that you know, managers best often learn with and from each other. Mm. And I guess another thing, another benefit of that is, in addition to kind of saving costs and it being more time efficient and things like that, is the way it supports the building of relationships when mm -hmm. people do go and ask their finance department yeah. rather than going off-site and doing some week-long course they're they're getting to know people better and they're building those relationships yeah and and i've just finished five years working with with nike globally well initially in europe with the senior so we're senior leadership development and interestingly the the demand from it came from the finance vice president 
uh, not from HR. And, you know, it was the finance vice president said, you know, well, people are all trained. I've got middle managers are trained up and everything. And but I need, I haven't got the people who can be move into senior positions. And, the, and one of the training people remembered working with me in a, another company. And so I got called in and then we set up this program. And, and Nike is very successful because it's very good at working across functions. And so we would always insist we would have groups of six back to what we do with, I mean, what we did with companies is exactly the same we do with uh, young people. We'd get six people from different parts of the business and people would say how much they'd learned about the other parts of the business by being in a group that met and that the groups. In, and when we do the program in a, in a business, so we group would meet about once every five or six weeks for a whole day. Basically, they would do answer those five questions. And they would then be told, right, you've got uh, six months, nine months, whatever, of a group. So the same five questions that students yeah. answer oh, yeah. when they come into you. <laughs> That's the so good. of businesses do the same. I and mean, we have run programs with chief executives, I, more on the coaching. But I mean, if I'm doing coaching, it's the same uh, five questions that I use in a one-to-one. You know, I just asked individual, you know, where have you been? Where are you now? Where do you want to get to? How are you going to get there? And how do you know if you got there? So, Yeah. It's exactly the same approach that we use. And that, and at the end, back to the outcome measure, the group has to report to top management. We usually try and get the chief executive or, but anyway, uh, someone pretty senior in the case of that program that I mentioned, although it was a vice president of finance that set it up. I mean, we, we got people from other parts of the business. And so it'd be people at vice president level in that particular case in Nike who would come at the end of the program and groups would have to present, you know, this is what we've done to take the business forward. This is what we've learned, which is benefiting me as an individual and benefiting you as my boss. <laughs> Cause that's another one that I do with, with managers, you know, is say, how would you like your life to be easier? Yeah. Uh, suppose your people were better at doing their jobs than they are now. Would that make like, yeah. Okay. So that's what we're about. You know, <laughs> So we'll run a self-managed learning program for you. It'll cost you to hire my time, and I'll charge you a lot of money for that. But but you don't pay any money out for training. Uh, one of the things we do is to give the budget to the group. I mean, we ran an MBA based on this. And the, instead of setting up a program, we took the fees off the companies, and then we said to the individuals, we've got to take a slice off to to run the business school, the rest of it is in a budget for you to use and you can spend it as you want. You can hire us, but you could hire outside people from another business school to, to do it. You know, we don't, because the issue is to reach the outcomes. And what we said about with the MBA is that you have to do a hundred percent. Every other MBA is low grade because you don't have to get hundred percent an exam. We go, you set those goals, you have to achieve them a hundred percent. And if you don't, you have to, you know, keep going. I mean, 90% you don't pass. <laughs> you have to achieve all those goals and you have to prove that you've done that and you have to prove that you're a more effective manager. And we get reports from the company. Some cases, the, 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 the managing director, chief executive would come to a group because the group does the assessment for the MBA. So the assessment was done by the learning group. So each person had to do a self-assessment and then bounce that off their colleagues because that's Crucial, how can you have a career? See, and the other argument I put in a, in a business is how can people decide which jobs to apply for? They have to be able to self-assess. But people who come out of the system, 
don't know how to self-assess. Yeah. So I've worked with graduates. You know, we ran a graduate program for British Airways. It was a, a, a fly, high flyers program for BA, not the normal graduate group. And we did a self-managed learning program. And they were terrible at, at, at making a self-assessment. You know, you say, well, how good are you at this? Oh, probably I'm really good, you know, because they saw themselves on an elite program, but then realized these were quite a lot to learn. But they, and I would say people who can't self-assess are, are dangerous, you know, surgeons who can't self-assess their ability to do an operation are dangerous. People die as a result of people not being very good at self-assessment in that field. And so that's the, that fifth question, really crucial. I don't know whether I'm answering your question, <laughs> particularly I could go on a lot about the history of how we developed so much learning, but I mean, how we justified it, it was those those things, you know, that, that we, this is a payoff for the business. Yeah. No, I am interested. Like, let, let's keep going because this is so fascinating. How did, how did you realize these things? How did you develop the idea? I'm a product of the 60s. Uh, um, you know, I was involved with the National Union of Students. I was National Secretary and I got very interested in, the whole issue of learning and education, because the national secretary's job was is that the president is the sort of political leader, and I was wanted to, and I wasn't terribly interested in that. I was more interested in how do we change the education system because it's not working. I didn't uh, enjoy my degree at all. I did a chemistry degree, so that started it. And a lot of actually the the, the major place where people challenge education system was a lot of the art schools that their sit-ins and their protests were about the nature of learning whereas in universities it was either you know political or we want a student on the senate or some other daft idea you know whereas in the art schools were i thought were really interesting about they they were more thoughtful about you know well this this isn't working this system isn't working and i then went into the training world after that and saw a some things that did work you know, approaches that were more practical away from the classroom, you know, simulations and role plays and this kind of thing, which you could see where people actually doing something practical seemed to make a difference. And then just a lot of reading and, and a, a lot of radical books on education, Carl Rogers and people like this who I'd read. And I went into what was a polytechnic, then became a university, and we set up something called the School for Independent Study in 1973. We, and the first students came in 1974. And this was the idea you could do a two-year diploma and then a one-year degree on top. And there was no curriculum, no syllabus, no anything, you know, you, and we took anybody. You, know, you didn't have to have any qualifications. So back to this, you know, we took people who'd, who'd never passed an exam in their lives. We took people who uh, come out of prison. We took people who come out of a mental hospital. We just said, if you want to come, if it seems like you want to do this and you like to benefit it from it, those are the only two entry requirements. And we say the same about our college, you know, the two entry requirements. Uh, do you want to be here? And is it likely to benefit you? That's it. Anything else doesn't matter because everyone else is of equal value. And, and so that was the other thing. We were saying everybody's equally valued in this. So we... It worked up to a point. There were things that worked well and things that didn't work well. But, I mean, uh, we had people going on to degrees in what was called independent study, you know, where they did just their own thing, you know. So, And people who'd got no background whatsoever, some of whom are now quite famous in their field. Um, Tony Travers at London School of Economics is seen as a kind of super guru on local government in this country. He came through that program. He came at 17, so he hadn't taken his A-levels in our system. And um, 
got interested in the whole issues of government and went, you know, did that, the sort of thing you couldn't do in a degree, an undergraduate degree, and um, ended up as a leading academic. And, that, and there were lots of other examples that we had of, of students who came through that. But there were things that I thought could be done better, and because I was working also doing a bit of consulting in industry and things. And this idea of action learning where you got people together and shared ideas. We had the, the, the five questions that we developed. And then there was this idea of in action learning, it's get people together in a group and talk to each other and you know they learn that way. And I just said, well, let's put the two together. This is this is innovation, you know. It's, it's nothing there's nothing new in so much learning. What's new is the fact that we're put together independent study approach with an action learning approach. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Ian Cunningham stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, they receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will be in the form of my interview with James Mannion, giving you a deep insight into my own reflections about visiting SMLC, XP Doncaster and Michaela Community School during my recent trip to the UK. This is a rich interview where I share some of the mental models that have laid the foundation for my own views on education, as well as a bit of my own educational history and how it shaped me as a teacher and a person. So if you'd like access to this in-depth discussion about my visit, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the recommended donation of $5 per month. That's a lot of value and a warm, fuzzy feeling for only the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Ian Cunningham. So you mentioned this bringing together this kind of self-managed learning or the five questions with this, what was it, active? Action learning. Action learning. So it was... Did, did this come out of something else or this was just something, these five questions or whether that's just something that you kind of developed and then the action learning, who, who, whose work is that? Uh, Reg Revens was, uh, was uh, Reg Revens. He, he, was, um, he was a very progressive guy after the war. He was developed a way of, of developing managers by just getting them together and getting them to talk to each other. So what he got was this idea that people can talk to each other and help each other. In the School of Independent Study, we developed things like the five questions, but we didn't have that support structure. So everybody could do their own thing. And the students actually complained that they wanted more structure and the staff interpreted that as more direction and more control. And it was the wrong way around. I mean, because people confuse structure and control. So, and I set up these self-managed learning groups uh, with the students I worked with and that worked really well. Uh, other students we did have a dropout rate because there wasn't enough support for individuals. But once you've got, you know, six people, well, we asked that first question about people's past. It's incredibly bonding. I mean, people, I remember doing a, a program with, uh, again, a big international techie company, and we were doing something with their middle managers. So I got the two senior managers, and I said, well, you know, we let's go through this same kind of question. And they, they each of them 
these are two guys who who'd known each other for ages who go out drinking go on well, holidays with with their, uh, with their families and they answered that first question and we do something called a lifeline they do ups and downs of their life you know and they shared that and both of them said this is these are things i didn't know i've known you for 10 years and this is stuff i didn't know about and one guy actually said i now understand why you have that quirk you know that I'd never understood before. It was kind of irritated me, and now I understand where it's come from. And they, they'd known each other for t- literally for 10 years. But because people don't ask people about, well, where have you, you know, what kind of life have you led? Who are you? You know, when we don't have that kind of conversation, mm-hmm. do we? A dinner party or, a, you know, or, or, or if we're discussing a topic, that's always out there, you know, and, and I will say dialogue is about connecting. It's not so sometimes about I mean, running a leadership program in a, in a business first meeting, you know, with the six, six people, six managers, they'll say, oh, well, what, what should we talk about, about leadership? And I know no, what's your issue with leadership. <laughs> this is not a discussion group. <laughs> what are you going to do about leadership? What are you, what, how are you going to be the best leader you can be? That's the, the question. And, dialogue first of all has to start with monologue and it was the person has to talk about themselves and we you know and they go may take 10 20 minutes to talk about themselves and we get them to do a flip chart with the ups and downs of their life you know and and show this so that they can then talk through what's made them who they are because unless you know that about a human being you know how can you help them to learn how you can't just pretend oh well they're 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 in this year in the school, therefore they're going to be like this. You know, this is what a teacher has to do. So my teacher's job is ridiculous. You know, you're, you, you've got, you're presented with 30 children and you've got to assume that from experience or whatever, that this is the general kind of makeup of this group. And then you might find out about kids, but you don't necessarily get that really in-depth sense of, of what's made this person be like they are, you know, because it's always come from the past. And unless you explore those past experiences, how do you know that person? So we find in business that, you know, well, there'll be tears in a group, you know, not with the kids, they, they can be kids in tears because they, they talk about, you know, family breakup, uh, a sibling who died and that what that meant to them. And we need to know that, you know, but they share only what they want to. Remember, this is their choice. They, they I say always, like any question I ask, you as a student you you don't have to answer it because you're in charge of your own learning but I, w- I will ask you things you know about well what what has happened there or they might show a dip in their life you know and then you go well so what you know what occurred there you know what happened and then they may say i don't want to talk about it and we go fine we don't want to talk about it we, you can only you only need to share what you want to share i'm interested in um the secret of your productivity in your in your 80th year, yeah. 79 years old, you just, uh, I mean, you showed me around all morning. You then went to your your dance class where you're planning a performance. Yeah. Uh, you then rode your bike up quite this steep hill to uh, <laughs> to do this interview with me today. You've written, how many books have you written? Uh, I think it's eight now, something. And I've, got, I've published, I mean, probably a couple of hundred papers now. Yeah. I'm our charcoals. You've done a lot of stuff, but, but and yet, you know, and as well, should I say, you were at this SMLC pretty much every day from what I can gather, or you're there a lot of the time. And when I was there today, you, there was no sense of kind of rushing or anything or like you had to be somewhere else to do to go and consult with Manchester United or Nike or anything like that. You, you were there, you were present, you were just like showing me around the whole time. How, how, do, you, how do you get all this stuff done but, but seem to have 
time and flexibility at the same time. Well, I, I'm not there all the time, and and it is important to have a good staff team, and that's been important always. Um, so it is working with other people. But I've also had this notion of crop rotation. In the old, uh, they still do it, but not very often. But in the Middle Ages, you had four fields, and three would be have particular crops, and they, they would rotate around, and the fourth would be fallow. But it wasn't. Uh, fallow didn't mean nothing happening, so that would there be clover and other things growing on there, and it would be uh, renewing the soil. So you'd have three active fields seemingly, but the fourth field was also active, but in a different way. And I've often done that kind of thing. So when I, for instance, left running this personal development division in the in the business school at North East London Polytechnic, I spent a year as a senior research fellow at Ashridge Management College. And that was kind of easy, you know, because it was like you're just doing research. I didn't have to do any teaching. I didn't have to, I mean, I ran the occasional seminar just if I felt like it, you know. But I was doing research, so I could spend time thinking. And, uh, and my snooker playing improved enormously because my office was above the snooker room, so I could go and practice. And I kept up my swimming because they had a nice pool there. Um, and so I've also, also tried to do that kind of thing. And then... Uh, after about five and a bit years running a business school, I just thought, right, I need a break, you know. And my chairman and, and of the board and, and the others couldn't, but, you know, they said, well, you've just got it going right. And I'm going, well, I think I've done enough, as much as I can do here. And the other changes that we need, you know, I'd rather somebody else take them on, you know, because I've made a lot of changes. Uh, the place to survive when it wasn't, was quite possibly not going to. And rebuilt the place and, you know, launched an MBA and all these sort of things that they were thought of doing before. Um, and I that's right. And, and so I went and set up my own business and, and said, well, let's, you know, but we'll, we'll, we'll not be crazy about this. So I've, I've yeah, it's trying to, trying to find balance. But it's back to, you know, self-managed learning. I have to manage my own learning and development. I have to keep learning, which keeps me fresh, you know. So someone someone coming from outside looking at a unique kind of learning environment like the one that's being created at SMLC, it's, I mean, I and many other people have, I'm sure, have tried to like work out what is it that makes this place work? What makes it tick? Is it the people? Is it uh, is it these processes that we've been talking about a little bit like that? Is it the, the community that it's situated in or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I'm wondering from your perspective, Ian, what are the kind of the absolute core active ingredients or the absolute like non-negotiables or things that really need to be in place and you're 100% sure that if these things were lost, the whole thing would fall apart? What are those core ingredients? Well, I think the adults involved are, are key. And you mentioned the community. I mean, the background or the kinds of students aren't an issue. Since we've we've almost worked on, you know, we don't select apart from this notion of do they want to be here? So we don't want to take anybody who wants being strung on by their parents to be with us, and we don't want to take anyone who won't benefit. And we have two roles because there's the learning advisors who are just all the adults there who help people to learn, including volunteers, and then there's a learning group advisor, which is where people working with a learning group, and that's where it's much more skilled activity. Actually, when we've worked in, well, what we found running the School for Independent Study way back in Northeast London Poly was that it was the central staff who were working, you know, with people on their learning agreements and and really understanding each student was the core. Uh, but actually, once the student is driving the process, 
and the one who's turning up and saying, I want to learn these things and I don't want to learn that stuff. I want to learn this stuff. Because the person asking the questions in any conversation is by and large the one who's driving the conversation. I mean, you're asking the questions, you're driving the conversation. So you're in charge, you know. So so how do we help the student to be in charge? Well, we it's by spending time with them so that they get their questions clear, what they want to learn, what they don't want to learn, how they want to learn it. Also. And then they can go to somebody who's an expert who may not actually be a lousy teacher, but it doesn't really matter. Everybody can help people learn. Some of it is actually quite simple in just thinking through who can be helpful. So having the right people, but on the other hand, knowing people who can be helpful in helping people to learn about stuff that they need to learn. But the the real skill is in how do you understand this person to help them do And that's where you need really skilled people. And it will it fails if we don't have those core stuff. You've got to know how to manage the money to make it work. And you have to be brutal. I mean, we have parents who we know have got money and then they they just decide they won't pay, you know, for the term. And so we hustle them and in the end we give it to debt collectors and they'll have the bailiffs round on the doorstep. I mean, we, you know, and, and parents know this, you know. I mean, we're not, we're going, well, you've got the money, you won't pay us because you just want to blag your way through life. We're not here for that. We are going to survive. We are going to have a future. That means you are going to pay up. Or you're gonna life is gonna be made miserable for you. <laughs> so you can't be soft-hearted in this, you know, thing because you have to keep hold of the core. You know, we're there for those students. And if I if we take a, a nine-year-old and they want to stay with us to 16, we have to have a seven-year strategy. You know, we can't just exist for this year. We have to know that we're gonna be there in seven years' time. And that means we've got to be financially viable, we've got to have good people, all of those things. But a lot of the other stuff that schools would think are important, like the, the building and stuff, isn't that important. We've made modifications in the, the building we're in, and we can do pretty well anything, you know, in that building. And it's just a normal office building. So, so there's a lot of things that we don't need from the schooling world, and which make us more cost-effective. So I suppose helping people to know there's a lot of things you don't need and there's some things that you really do need that, that a school wouldn't necessarily have, like a person who can be a learning group advisor. Because you don't have to know uh, any, have any subject knowledge, you know, to do it. You have to be very good at asking questions and being very sharp. Uh, well, my doctoral thesis was around the role, actually. Right. So I did, did my PhD was very much around what, the, what you actually did in a group. And a lot of the time you're listening and learning and you've got to be a good learner to do this work. You know, that, that is, you've just got to be there for, for the students and listen to them and, and respond. You can't be soft. I mean, we, we do have to take tough decisions as well. I always say that, that I don't have a right to be challenging of a student unless they've committed to something. So in the group that I work with, they'll put down what they're going to work on this week and then when i see them on monday it'd be somebody bound to be uh oh yeah i didn't get around to that so i'm going well what stopped you doing it then you you know and i was i i'm challenging them about what's prevented them. I, interesting i never asked a, a why question if i could avoid it because that asks for people to rationalize i mean so there's a whole lot of stuff about we have a questioning model that i, I have to teach people when they come and one of them is to avoid asking why so, because if you got why haven't you done that? Then they give you all sorts of oh, the dog ate my homework or kind of answers. So, 
But if you ask them what stopped you, then you're asking them to give you more data to go into their world and, and help you to understand their world because it says, what is stopping somebody? You know, what, and I want to know that because then I'm saying, so may, is there something else we need to do to help you to remember to do this? You know, if you've forgotten this, do you write things down? Do you, you know? So I, I think the people side is, is crucial and having a business sense is, is crucial. And then, as I say, a lot of it that you would think required for a school isn't required. We don't need people who can teach particular subjects, for instance. Obviously, maths and English, you know, we have to have people who can deal with that because that's what's required by the colleges, you know. But um, we have students who learn all sorts of things, and students sometimes come to us because they couldn't learn it in a school, but they can learn it with us. Mm. And they can do a GCSE like Coco doing it in law. I mean, and what, what, I can mention her name because she was in the local press when... Apropos of our students talking about people who are misbehaving, she she was she came as a thirteen year old with ADHD and dyslexia. She'd been pretty much kicked out of school because they said, "Well, she's doodling all the time and annoying people and won't sit still." And she came and for the first year, kind of sat on a sofa and irritated people and made funny little animals out of plasticine, and that was it. And the staff are going, what? what? <laughs> and I'm going, well, patience, you know. By 15, she'd published a graphic novel, you know, that the publishers couldn't believe a 15-year-old girl could publish, you know, I mean, to, to, to produce. And it's a proper novel, and it's really good. And, it, and very kind of complicated and, and adult story in it. But she's someone who decided to, to learn law. And like you heard, you know, today, uh, one of the things we... we typically get asked about that as well let's go and see the law in action then and then she wanted to know about certain things to do you know because she was learning law out of a book because she could learn things out of a book despite her dyslexia so i said do you want to meet a lawyer said, yeah so we bring in a lawyer she talks to a lawyer do you, and then do you want to see the law in action yes yeah, so we go down to the law courts i mean so all the, a lot of things that are assumed that you have to have people who are there to teach things. No, you know, she could she passed her law GCSE without us. She couldn't have done that GCSE in a school. And despite schools supposedly having a broad and balanced curriculum, they don't. They have a narrow and unbalanced curriculum. And it's back to these 57 different ways of learning. You know, so whilst staff again need to know I would say if you're going to do the job of a learning group advisor, you've got to know all those 57 different approaches, what's available, because students often need help in, they're pretty good at actually, once you help them, understanding themselves, and they're pretty good at setting goals once they learn how to do that. But what they're not great at is, because they, they, if they've come from school, the default is that do I learn it out of a book or do I I'll learn it on a screen or do I learn it in a classroom? day so to say well oh you know how about you learn it this way or that way i mean it's a long way around but it's a complicated question i'm i don't know there's more to it i could say but i'm trying to give the general sense that it's doable but if you start with assumptions like we've got to replicate a school then you're on a loser so who is the self-managed learning college for or who who is self-managed learning for in general it was like seven to 70, but since I'm now 79, we'd say seven to 107. I mean, before seven, I think we'd go with the Finnish model that it's kindergarten and play and, that you know, school before seven is just daft. But we've worked in primary school, infant schools with 
and run a salvage learning program with seven-year-olds, and it works, you know. So, for instance, we had a boy, a seven-year-old boy, it wasn't a group I was running, it's one of my colleagues, said he wanted to be an astronaut, you know, because that was popular at the time. And, of course, that's fine, because then what you go is, well, what would an astronaut need to know, to learn? You know, well, would they need to know about science? Yeah, and astronomy? Yeah, and maths? Yeah, English? They'd be able to read? Yeah. So pretty easy for, for that boy to come out with, I want to learn all these things then. And the fact he may not be an astronaut doesn't matter, because he can make a link between this big picture of astronaut out there, his vision of an astronaut, and now. So part of the goal setting is, is we ask people about what kind of life they want to lead, and then what would that mean in terms of work, and then what that would mean in terms of now. So there's three levels of goal setting. And back to your question, it, it's for anybody of any age. I mean, I think it's 107 is not necessarily an exaggeration. There was a programme that they did on television in England about children from a, a primary school going to a home for elderly people. So these were like, I think, seven-year-olds or something like this. And what they did was to go and spend time with these old people. But what they did was to test both the kids and the old people before the programme. So the programme only lasted a, a few months. And at the end of it, they tested them again. And it's not surprising that the, the kids had improved in all sorts of areas, you know, because they'd be learning in other contexts anyway. But what was interesting with the old people, they had a woman of 104 whose cognitive and physical abilities improved over a period of, a few, of two or three months, that's all. And I know the tests that they give them because we do them, you know, I, I've done them because of being an old person in a dance company. And they pretty demanding and quite stand, good standard tests. I mean, the, the, the academics who are running the programme are you know, very experienced academics who have done these kind of tests before. But, I mean, I, and I, I just that's staggering, isn't it? A 104-year-old, not just uh, its physical and cognitive ability improved. And then, of course, the stupid thing is they just did it and then stopped, you know, because it was for the TV programme. For goodness sake, why isn't this every old people's home and the infant school in the country doing this? You know, I mean, for goodness sake. And it is a problem with the educational world, and it is a problem, of course, when we do a self-managed learning program in a school, is that quite often they go, that really worked well, uh, what else should we do, you know? <laughs> and we're going, ah, oh, you know. I mean, some places have carried it on, but some places haven't. Uh, it works, and they go, oh, that was good, that's a nice project. On to the next one. <laughs> so do you think, would it be your preference that every student goes to a school like or a, a learning community like SMLC and doesn't go to a standard school? Do you think that would be preferable? Do you think most standard schools should exist, but this should be an option for people? Like what, what would the ideal world look like in your, in your eyes? I think it would be closer to what we've done for most of human history, which is that communities would be much more involved with, with the learning of young people because that's what, how people learn. There's not, you know, and a lot of it, anthropologists have shown with with indigenous people that are still closer to the hunter-gatherer end of the spectrum if you like that that works really well that the, and and there's now recognition that the kind of knowledge these people is incredibly sophisticated i show a program about australia uh, in fact and the, there was a botanist professor going out with original aboriginal women and they were able to show him a distinction between two kinds of plants, you know, that were different. And that he was like, I didn't know this, you know, as a botanist. 
that they were able to say, well, that is actually different than that. And they, they, they look very similar. But because because those women, have, you know, for a whole life, they'd lived in that context, they know. So one was one plant was, was more nutritious or something than the other one or whatever. But anyway, there was a difference that, that he, and as a president of botany, he was actually quite surprised that he hadn't, he didn't know this difference between, and, and you had to look really closely to tell that there were two different kinds of, Plants, you know, they were, and they had different names in the Aboriginal language. There were two and two different names for them. And of course, we now look at these cave paintings from forty thousand years ago and go, you know, these guys are pretty good. I've seen them in the in the in France, you know, in, in the Dordogne. Yeah. So it's back to the whole piece about learning. I I think that it's inevitable that we'll have because of the way we'll evolve some kind of institutional arrangements. I think in the future come what may, whether they're like Oz or something else. I'm more interested in how people, you know, learn to carry on learning through their lives, you know, because this is what's crucial. And, and lifelong learning is often talked of as lifelong going on courses, also, which is a nonsense, of course. Yeah. I mean, I've learned contemporary dance through dancing. I watch films a lot. I go and watch live performances. I do it a lot. I see somebody doing something and I, I want to try and do that. You know, I see a particular move and I go, that was really interesting. And, and it may well be at home if I'm watching on the screen, I'll actually be standing up and doing it, you know, with the dancers. I'm kind of dancing with them, you know, to learn. And, and all these ways of learning, I'm reading books about dance. And so part of it is about how people learn about carry on learning and, and what we help them to do. I'm not kind of utopian in any of this. I'm not imagining that tomorrow all the schools will disappear and whatever. I think that there will be, there will have to be an inevitable reconsideration of the way in which we spend our money on schooling and what schooling is doing to kids because we know the negative impacts are so huge now. And Buckminster Fuller, who's a guy I've quite admired for the kind of work he's done, said, well, you know, what you have to do is to not to try and change the, the, the existing process, come up with a new model, which then when this finishes, that you've got something that's already working to use. Uh, so we've said we've produced a model that we say, well, this works. And if schools actually collapse tomorrow, we've got a model to show. Three book recommendations, Ian, for, for listeners who are keen to... <laughs> broaden their reading speak on the topic of reading just you know just a, just a quick answer for this one three three books you reckon um, people should get into i still think it's it's worth reading carl rogers freedom to learn the second edition because in that one he realized there were it wasn't quite so simple and i think that i mean there are other books around that time and it was a, a golden era for a lot of uh, literature goodman stuff obviously illich and Freire. And a lot of people were writing 60s, 70s, you know, into the 80s, I suppose, uh, which is sort of gone, you know, in a way. People like Peter Gray's book, and that has some good good bits in it, you know. Um, he's been keen on the Sudbury model, which is more open, less structured than our approach, but um, the fact that his research shows that it, it, it can work even, I think, in what I would think is a less continual manner than, than what we've tried to work to those would be you know pretty pretty much at the top of it i i think that 
then there's stuff that isn't it isn't normally read by educationists. I'm, I'm hesitant to say Gregory Bateson's work, but it's not very readable. But I mean, I've I've actually went to a lecture Bateson did, and and I mean the audience was kind of boggled because he's <laughs> but his stuff about learning one, learning two is so crucial. A more accessible version is in the business world. Uh, Chris Argyris, American professor took Bateson's idea and talked about, you know, again, two levels of learning, and it's a bit more accessible. But I think that those fundamentals, um, so although um, Steps to an Ecology of Mind is, is, is the Bateson, his collection of his papers, and there is one on learning in there, but you have to read it a couple of times before you get it, because it is a bit opaque. But I, I think that challenging people as, as Bates and stuff does is, is more important. I, mean, I think there's a lot of mechanistic stuff around and there's a lot of stuff which is nice stuff, you know, John Holt's thing, stuff and material is, is sort of nice. But it's if I'm thinking of things that, that certainly have influenced me, then I would put Bates and at the top and then Carl Rogers, I suppose. I don't think I was influenced by Pisa Gray. I think I'd already, I'd already a lot about, for instance, about anthropological evidence about hunter-gatherers. He's pulled it together very well, but I think it's very accessible, Peter Gray's book, for teachers especially, and a lot of his writings that he's done, and psychologist. If you want to learn more about Self-Managed Learning College, where where can they go? We've got a website, smlcollege.org.uk. It's um, pretty accessible. There's a lot of articles. My book, Self-Managed Learning and the New Educational Paradigm, is published by Routledge. It's been out since last year. I think it was 21. They named it as it was available by the end of 2020. And there's other stuff about the working organisations that you can easily find the self-managed learning stuff that's that's organisationally based. There's a lot more publications in that area, including new one on, on developing leaders for real, which was out last month, uh, published by Emerald. But that's an edited collection by Harry Gray and Jimson and myself, and as a partner in the in the company Strategic Developments International. So there's plenty of, of organisational stuff out there. And then you know I'm happy if people email me and say send me some articles, you know, and, think, and it's just Ian at smlcollege.org.uk. People can email me and, and say, I don't want to buy your book. Can, can you send me some quick articles? And I'm very happy to do that, you know. And any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Ian? Well, in the, in the book, I, I do actually say, I think we as adults have a moral obligation to do something for young people. You know, we, they're inheriting a world that we've messed up. And I do see it as a kind of moral dimension to, to being a parent and grandparent, of course, you know, in terms of, how I view my son and daughter and my grandchildren, but also more widely, the young people that come to the college, you know, got an obligation to. So I talk about having skin in the game in, in the book, you know, that Taylor, I mean, there's this notion of uh, what he says is that um, those that say shouldn't do and those that do, should, you know, that those who do should be saying stuff, you know, so... So I, that's why one of the reasons for setting up the college is going, I'm not going to write about lots of ideas about what people should do. I've got to go and do it and say, I've done it. You know, I'm a scientist. That's Your job as a scientist is to go do stuff and then 
show whether it works or not, you know, because that it's not quite so easy in, in education because of controversies over what it means. So I, I think that if people can actually start to think about these issues and then say, well, what can I do? And one of it is, is just our role as adults in general. In, in you know, there's kids around us all the time. I, I mean, there's young people on our street, you know, where I live, you know, that I, yeah, I feel an obligation to, in a sense, to, I'm an adult, you know, they've got parents who are really nice and everything, but I can engage with them because, you know, it's, it's, being, it's being a human being, you, it's, it's taking an interest in others. And in any walk of life, I think, you know, if you're in a workplace, do you help other people to learn stuff or do you just learn stuff for yourself and not share it, you know, simple things like that. And kids, of course, are taught not to share because then, then it's because it's they say uh, being told it's a competitive world. Well, yes, but it's if we don't work together better. I just done a, a session for a, a conference, which was, um, and I just decided to go back to Freud, who said that you know that that love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. So I wasn't saying love and work are the only things, but that if you don't get the ability to love and the ability to work right, you've got a problem in life. And I think that is absolutely true. But of course, the English language only has one word, love, you know, whereas if you, in Greek, they had a lot, you know, like the agapeian love of, of others and of humanity and etc. There are lots of Greeks had more words for love and in addition to eros and erotic love, uh, which is also important ability to love in that way and to make families work and things but that agapean notion of a more a love of of your your fellow beings and of the planet and of the creatures on the planet you know that's how do you do you love that or not you know that's and the work bit you know that actually we do need to work not necessarily for money i mean i work and don't get paid because i got a pension so i don't need to earn money for what i do but i work and that people who don't have work, uh, we know that's mentally disadvantageous. You know, mental health problems are associated with lack of work for people. And that makes sense. I mean, that's it, you know. Oh. <laughs> Ian Cunningham, thank you so much for your time today. Um, thank you for your generosity and showing me around SMLC this morning. It really was a huge privilege to be able to go in and, and to see the place in action. I saw some of the most empowered learners I've, I've ever seen within the walls of, of SMLC and it was really great to see the practices in action and, you know, see them working really well in some cases and also seeing them not working as, as well as you'd like in some cases and kind of getting a sense of the reality of, of running an organisation such that SMLC is. One thing that really struck out to me today, you said people confuse structure and control and I think that's that for me that's probably going to be one of the biggest lessons that really sticks with me from this one because whilst you do say students learn what they want, when they want, how they want, and they can stop whenever they want kind of a thing, there's actually so much around the structure of building that glass, you know, that transparent, robust kind of open space or structure that is the, at the core of making SMLC work. And the other thing that's really coming out through our discussion is just 
your conviction and the conviction that's required to challenge the current system and to challenge any system, but to create something that's sustainable and is going to last for the long term as SMLC already has and as I'm sure it will continue to do. So thank you for your time. Thanks for having me in SMLC. Thanks for riding up the hill doing a bit for the environment, riding a bike, riding up the hill and coming to, coming here for this interview today. And I look forward to reading, reading more of your work and hearing more about your successes in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post or any other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning. That web address again is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you're keen for all the Patreon perks, including summaries and interactive transcripts of this and past episodes, then just go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show for as little as $1 per month or the recommended $5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to keep the podcast sustainable for the long term. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.